I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This episode of The Bib Show is brought to you by Bridge Street Capital Partners. Bridge Street is a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specializes in equity capital markets transactions for small cap companies listed on the ASX, primarily in the mining, energy and tech sectors. If you are a Section 708 sophisticated investor and would like to be on Bridge Street's distribution list for their upcoming capital raisings, send them an email with your details to info at bridgestreetcapital.com.au and mention the BIP show in your message. And now, on with the show. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business, investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. Don't forget to hit subscribe, rate us wherever you get your podcasts. And a reminder that all the financial information in this show is general in nature only. Speak to a professional advisor about your needs. I'm Paul Colgan, Director at CT Group. James Whelan is on assignment on a mandatory office lockdown trivia event. Uh, But uh, joining me from Amsterdam is Ken Vexler, Managing Director at Acumen Management. How are you, Ken? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm uh, I'm okay. It's, uh, It's a tad early here, so I'm still trying to get my bearings as to where my left hand is and where my coffee is and where my right hand is. But a, I'm good. All, all, Looking forward to it. Always good to do things first thing in the morning. Get them out of the way yeah. for the day. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, look, we, we've had a couple of interesting shows recently on very specific topics. So we had Tolgo Komova talking about small caps. Uh, And we had Mark Best talking about the crushing effects of lockdowns on the hospitality industry. But it is time to get back onto some home turf with uh, Global Macro because there has been a lot going on. Rates, bonds, stocks, the US, China and the growth picture with what we're learning almost daily now on the Delta strain of the coronavirus. Uh, That's all. We're all going to cover all of that and more, I'm guessing, because our guest is Kerry Craig, Executive Director and Global Markets Strategist at JP Morgan. Kerry has been a guest before on the BIP show. Uh, He's an exceptionally insightful commentator and analyst when it comes to the global economy. He's a CFA charter holder and a New Zealander. uh, So we are going to spend the next hour trying not to bring up the rugby. But Kerry Craig, welcome back to the BIP show. Thanks, Paul. Uh, Absolute pleasure to be here and uh, a very warm introduction there. Thank you for that. (laughs) That's right. It's great to have you back on. Um, And something you mentioned uh, when we spoke earlier this week uh, was the three peaks uh, that you've been thinking about. Uh, This sounds a little ominous to me when you gave me a potted summary uh, earlier, but uh, maybe you can take uh, us and our listeners uh, through it uh, because it's an interesting way of uh, thinking about how the global economy is looking. Certainly. It's, um, I don't know why it popped into my head, but um, I think in this time of year, when I was living in England, they used to do the three-peak challenge where you had to try and traverse the highest points in Scotland, England and Wales, uh, usually a charity event. And it's kind of similar for investors at the moment when thinking about the markets. They're trying to traverse these three peaks when it comes to thinking about you know, a peaking in global uh, growth. Uh, a peaking in sort of earnings and corporate activity that we're seeing in developed markets, 
Um, and then a peaking in accommodation and monetary policy as we think about central banks starting to normalize rates or at least move away from uh, bond purchases. And it's not about the fact that you're reaching these peaks. You know, what everyone is concerned about is what happens on the other side. You know, are we going to fall off the cliff or is it going to be a case of just letting things run down the hill? And it's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I think that if everything continues to move higher at the same time, the questions would then be about asset bubbles and if things were just going to be uh, a little bit too heady in terms of uh, investor enthusiasm, at least with the sort of degree of not necessarily scepticism, but caution with the markets. I think it's kind of healthy in terms of thinking about we have had a very strong run in economic growth uh, over the last few quarters, a very strong run in equity markets over the last year. Um, and we do see the need for you know central banks to move away from those very accommodative stances as they do think about you know all this liquidity and what it's actually doing in markets. So the three peaks there are something that I think just position for over the coming months uh, and something we watch closely in terms of how the markets are going to react to what's on the other side. So uh, just in terms of the growth picture, because obviously nothing goes well if the growth picture isn't together. Um, so the US is looking good. The infrastructure package, the first part of the big sort of Biden stimulus uh, uh, looks like it's together now. Um, there may be more to come. So, you know, Delta notwithstanding, um, I think pretty much kind of, and the Fed is even making noises that tapering bond purchases is very much still a live discussion. Uh, so they're obviously comfortable enough to be saying that, uh, comfortable enough with the growth picture to be saying that. Um, while the rest of the world has a big fat question mark over it, you know, um, uh, in terms of how the uh, EM and maybe Europe uh, and certainly for Australia, how the growth picture is going to look. I wonder what you think about the possibility that the US could kind of decouple from the rest of the world, uh, posting strong growth uh, while the rest of the world is uh, a li little bit more lackluster and what that might mean. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, concept to think about the US breaking away. Uh, and when we think about how the global economy has sort of evolved over the last 18 months in response to the, um, the pandemic. Um, it has been a staggered outlook for economies. You know, we think about China, that first in, first out uh, sort of principle when it comes to the, the pandemic. It replaced all the sort of economic output it's lost. Its growth is slowing. You know, China's officials have already um, taken away some of the, the credit support that was there and is, is one of the reasons why there's this sort of concern over growth at the moment. And then following that was the US. Obviously, you had huge amounts of, of fiscal stimulus, monetary stimulus, and this very sharp recovery. And the US economy is doing very well. It's continuing to move at a above-trend pace. But again, it's it's replacing all that lost output, the, you know, the sort of the output gap that economists talk about in terms of, you know, the potential growth there versus the actual growth and, and how that's narrowing. It is, is narrowing pretty quickly and it will replace that output over the next couple of quarters. So, you know, naturally the US economy is moving from that sort of early recovery into sort of a mid-cycle kind of position as a, a lot of the economic indicators point to. So I think that's the evolution in terms of those two parts of the world, which, you know, it's over 50% of GDP and that's why you have these concerns about global growth are moving to the next phase of growth. And in fact, when we think about places like Europe or Japan and even emerging markets, 
they're still very much in catch up. You know, they're still trying to replace that lost output. There's still huge amounts of recovery to happen there. So if anything, I would expect that places like Europe, the growth rates there will actually surpass what you see in the US over the coming quarters as the US economy doesn't, you know, stop or stall. It just moderates its growth as moves to mid-cycle, whereas places like Europe still have you know, very supportive monetary policy, huge amounts of fiscal stimulus still there if we think about the European Recovery Fund, and a lot more catch-up in the economy. So I think that there's a case of thinking about the rest of the world catching up to the US, which has kind of been leading the pack for a while now, and thinking about the the growth engine uh, that we've seen over the last year actually rotating to these other economies outside the US. So uh, that's perfect, uh, Kerian. Um Sorry, I'll, I'll just jump in there and, and, and take on from, from Colgo if I, if I can. And it sort of leads me into uh, what I was hoping to discuss, which is basically what you perceive uh, going forward to be, you know, the drivers of global growth. I mean, basically, previously, um, you know, pre-COVID and then sort of the, the world that we got used to living in, uh, it was very much a China-led story. You know, if China was doing well, then the rest of the world was sort of trudging along and doing well alongside. Um, and I think you've sort of touched on it, you know, in your previous answer, but my question was more more along the lines of, do you regard, you know, growth that we're going to be seeing globally, let's say, going forward, do you see it more also China-led again, as it's traditionally been, or do you see it sort of in a more idiosyncratic form in terms of geographic pockets that, as, as you noted, you know, that in due course, Europe may outperform on a relative basis, the US and the like. How, how do you perceive that? Well, I don't think we can get away from the fact that given China's size and even at, you know, relatively slower rates of growth for, for the Chinese economy, it's still such a huge driver of what we see globally. It still creates a massive amount of demand and also creates a massive amount of the world supply of, of goods as well. So, you know, there is going to be definitely... Uh, sentiment towards growth that stems from China and what's happening there. And, you know, we are seeing moves at the moment by Chinese officials to try and shore up some of that near-term growth uh, output. But it, it will be the case that you'll see, you know, I guess the smaller economies around the world, such as Europe, and later on emerging markets really become more significant in terms of that growth driver. And that's going to be particularly relevant when we think about asset allocations into next year because, you know, one of the things that's very much a positive for thinking about emerging market equities and how well they do is the, the relative difference between EM and DM growth. And when EM is growing more than DM, emerging market equities tend to do quite well, whereas at the moment we've been in the situation where actually developed markets are growing more than equity markets, or emerging markets, excuse me. So as that reverses that concept for equity investors, and we'll actually see that that growth will more come from the EM side uh, and those markets like Europe and Japan, which again, have recovered a long way, but still have more to go. So those drivers of growth will definitely shift, but we, we can't get away from that China is still a very important part of the global economy and will have significant impact, particularly when we think about demand for commodities such as copper, iron ore, um, coal. All these things are gonna have a huge impact. We can't expect places like Europe or places outside of China to be able to necessarily replace all that demand if China does start to curtail it. So we can't move away from China being very significant, but we do think this would be greater focus on other parts of the world in terms of 
being more of the, the growth driver, at least over the course of the next year. Sure, of course. And I mean, ultimately, look, look, let's be honest, China's China and they can't dismiss it. Even even on a bad day, China's still having what most uh, nations would consider a good day. Um, but look, it, it's, it's almost, you know, in, in answering uh, that question, it's almost as though you read my mind regarding my next question, which was basically, you know, a, a lovely segue into something that's been bugging me for quite some time. And, and it, it's, it's only because I look at the world or have done over the last 20 or something years doing this from a relative value sort of top-down macro approach and, and where, where if anywhere, they might make divergences and the like. So I suppose my next question, and then you've touched on it, is do you see anywhere, um, sort of globally speaking, a, diver- a significant enough divergence be it in policy or legislative reaction function or economic conditions or, or whatever it may be, so as to make you know, relative value as, as a concept of, or investing, a trading concept, to make it a reality again. But basically, I suppose I'm sort of asking in a roundabout way if you can explain to me why everything isn't all one trade, right? Why, why everything isn't correlated to one if it's not? And and where, if anywhere, do you see these uh, these pockets of, of, you know, divergence? No, it's, a, it's an excellent question because um, a lot of the narrative that you hear from investors and, and you see in, in media reports or by other commentators is that, you know, equity markets are expensive, fixed income markets are expensive, global economy is slowing down, so we've got to worry about how much we're paying for these assets and what they can actually return. And there's a degree of truth to that. Obviously, things are expensive, so if you pay a lot for them, your, your returns are going to be lower in the future. But what that really masks, and I'm sure you're aware of this, is that huge amounts of dispersion across valuations in these assets uh, and within the assets themselves. So you can take something like the US equity market, the S&P 500, uh, and look at a valuation metric such as the price to earnings ratio or the expected earnings over the next 12 months, the forward price to earnings ratio, uh, and just see the dispersion across the, the sectors and companies being the widest it's been for, for decades um, because you have you know things like energy stocks which are at the bottom because everyone's worried about ESG and and, um, uh, and the move to, to net zero and sort of carbon and at the top end you've got things like these very expensive growth and tech sectors which have rallied so hard over the last decade that you've got this wide gap which is not really captured when you just think about the index level of the valuation on the US equity market. So there's still a huge amount of of relative value that's available in the market and there's still a massive amount of catch up in our mind and a lot of the cyclical stocks out there that are in tune with the reopening which really haven't had the chance to grasp. So things like tourism uh, related stocks, airlines, leisure, of hospitality kind of stuff where there's still an expectation that these things are going to benefit from the reopening and haven't fully been able to participate in that yet um, and that's where you'll see that continued rotation in our mind and the, the valuations in those parts of the market uh, aren't yet uh, at the extreme levels you've seen in a lot of the growth parts of the market so is that with the sectors and then the relative valuations within regions are still there so Europe and Japan still relatively attractive on the equity market side of things compared to the US. Emerging markets are a bit of a mixed bag, obviously, when we think about emerging markets as a whole. The equity side of things is dominated by China, Korea, Taiwan. Um, those markets have done really well. If we think about the demand for semiconductors that we've seen particularly, but the rest of the emerging world 
ASEAN, for example, which is more reliant on tourism, uh, Latin America, you know, things that have to be more in tune with commodity cycles, they haven't done so well. So there's a lot of relative value, but the timing of that shift in emerging market is something to be considerate of. And again, that's one of the reasons we prefer to think about the developed market side being more attractive in terms of that relative value argument um, and where you'll see the more sort of quality earnings growth come through. So I do believe there's a lot in terms of the relative trade still to happen uh, in the equity market. And again, particularly compared to other assets such as government bonds, because yields are still very, very low and going up, but not by that much. And so equities are going to continue to look very attractive on that basis as well. Just actually, I mean, this this wasn't, Colgo, sorry to sort of dumb this on you, this wasn't really on the schedule as well, but it got me thinking in terms of EM, I suppose, I, I wanted to get your, your view on how much, because to, to my mind, EM, I probably will get it slightly differently to you. And, and what I mean by that is EM for the longest of times uh, to me has been predominantly about hot money flow. I mean, obviously you've got uh, FDI, so I mean, that, that's more the, 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 the direct investment in various projects, economies, whatever else that would span just by the nature of it, a longer investable horizon, longer time frame, and the like, right? Now, has that diminished over the last, you know, however long, let's say five, 10 years? To my mind, yes, but it's probably increased in other pockets in the EM space. But predominantly, when I think about EM, I look at, I sort of think about it from a, a, you know, hot money flow perspective. So that if overall, you know, the the, the sentiment globally is that things are okay and they're on the up and up and, and that things are sort of moving in the right direction, there'll be more money flowing into EM looking for that yield and the returns that, that those economies can generate on, on a sort of short time, a short term basis. How, how do you perceive the, the, the stickier money in EM versus the quicker money? Because, I mean, I, I, it's not that I'm negative on the global outlook, but I just think in the environment that we've found ourselves in the last 18 months and potentially in the next 18 months as, you know, the various variants unfold and, and the like, how, how do you perceive EM sort of working in, 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 in that space? Because I, I just... I. I suppose the short version of what I'm talking babbling at length about is that I just I can't see EM doing particularly well as a whole on the basis of a global confidence coefficient that's that's probably quite soft. Um, does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean the, the the point about hot money flows are particularly relevant. We think about um, the the potential for the Federal Reserve in the US to start tapering its bond purchases uh, in the course of this year. I mean, if we think back to 2013 and the taper tantrum, saw a huge sell-off in emerging market equities because there had been a massive amount of this hot money flow into these assets looking for yield, looking for return. Um, And you haven't seen that this time around because you know, a lot of emerging markets have been hampered. Their growth outlook has been um, sort of blighted by, you know, the emergence of COVID and the Delta variant. Uh, and so you haven't seen that money flow in. So it doesn't have the same level of support in terms of the hot money flows it has in the past, which is actually a positive for thinking about a reversal of that trend. Um, and I do think that more and more, when we look at the return potential from developed markets over the next 10 years, which we do in our long-term capital market assumptions, you know, it points you more and more towards 
things like emerging markets for that growth and alpha potential that's running out in developed markets and actually point you towards you know, non-traditional assets as well. So investors are, are opening up to the idea of what you see in emerging markets for the long-term growth story. China is a perfect example of that. Again, the near-term story investor sentiment is, is very poor, but the, the longer-term trends there over the, the next five years in terms of the development is, is extremely strong. Uh, in terms of the catch-up you could see there relative to places like the US as China becomes uh, a more developed and eventually an advanced economy. So I think you're right, the hot money flows um, haven't been there at the moment. They may start to pick up uh, next year when we see things start to turn for emerging markets. But again, I think that's one of the reasons to be more positive about why um, there's probably not the risk of a big um, sell-off in emerging markets if we do think about some of the central banks moving away from a combinative policy that has been in the case in the past. The, the other thing, if, we, if we're still talking about that, I mean, I, I wanted to touch on the Roaring Twenties, that whole concept, but I'll, I'll circle back to that. I suppose while we're on sort of a roll, with regard to the EM space, I mean, equally, if, if to my mind, when monetary conditions globally sort of begin to tighten and globally they're obviously generally led by the Fed. Now, if we're talking about the Fed, and to my mind, this is way, way off, so I don't think it's even an issue, but if we are talking about a, a tightening cycle led by the Fed and that kicks off sooner rather than later, how much of an impact is that on, on EM? I mean, is, is that more a hot money flow issue rather than an FDI issue, or, or how do you perceive that? Again, I mean, we've done some work comparing, um, you know, the 2013-14 experience with uh, a normalisation of policy in the US and what happened to markets <clears throat> with what's the expectations now. And it was a very, very different environment when we think about how the, the Fed is operating today compared to back then. You know, overall, the Fed is, is more dovish as an institution than it was back then. They've telegraphed the changes for what feels like forever, and they're going to continue to do so until they actually make those changes. Um, and similarly, you know, you haven't had the big run-up in, in emerging market um, assets that you've had prior to the, the 2014 tapering episode. And so back then, you did have big sell-offs in some equity markets, such as Korea, but they were more idiosyncratic factors, and other markets that continue to perform well. Um, the, the movements in currencies were, were quite extreme because of what's happened, but this time around, they're unlikely to be so because of you know factors influencing the US dollar, such as the, the twin deficits, also the, the fact that you are going to have uh, perhaps a bit more support if there's these global growth concerns and a bit of safe haven buying or people just looking for, for treasury yields at a slightly higher level as they start to move higher. Um, but I don't think you'll get that same big fluctuation in currency. If anything, you know, emerging market equities are likely to do well as the US dollar um, comes down if, if the growth prospects for EM look better. So I think there's a lot of things in favour for EM in the future. The timing is just such a big question when we're still thinking about the impact of, of Delta and what it means, the vaccination rates and just how far and fast they will progress to actually get things under control or whether you know, herd immunity is just achieved through uh, the natural rates of infection of these kind of um, this kind of virus. So I think the, the output of tightening cycle from the Fed and the impact on emerging markets won't be the same this time around. Even some emerging market central banks have been raising interest rates as they're a little bit more sensitive to inflation. And we can think about, you know, the Brazilian central bank and others aren't. So others are being quite reserved and holding their currencies 
trying to hold their currencies down and, and keep interest rates low, like the Bank of Korea, Bank of Indonesia, as they're more concerned around the, the impact of the Delta virus in the near term. So those are dynamics which are very different this time around than have been in the past and would sort of suggest to us not that you know this time is different because you don't say those words, but the things in play in the market have a very different dynamic to what they have in the past. And so you can't necessarily use that as an as a exact guide for what will happen. So, Kerry, um, you, you mentioned briefly inflation there. Uh, so uh, we have talked a lot about inflation uh, on the BIP show over the last few months. In fact, we had to stop talking about it because we just uh, we ended up, the conversations ended up being, you know, 30 minutes talking about uh, supply chain battle, bottlenecks and the risks of inflation and whether it was transitory or not, etc. So, but obviously a big factor in this is uh, the continuing strong prints that we're seeing in core CPI inflation in the U.S. Uh, so they're consistently beating expectations. Jackson Hole is coming up next week. Uh, Jay Powell is going to talk on Friday. Um, uh, you know, and I have moved definitely from the non-transitory camp back into the transitory camp uh, over the last few months. But I'm starting to rethink that again and. I'm starting to wonder maybe there are some kind of sustained inflationary pressures uh, or inflationary pressures that could be sustained uh, over a long period, uh, it, particularly in the US economy, which would have significant impl implications for the Fed. So I just wanted to ask you where your head's at with this, how you're thinking about it and what you're what you're looking at. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's, it's a thing that's proving the most decisive or divisive, excuse me, when, you, when you're talking to investors who are either fear inflation or just <clears throat> think we're going back to this sort of, you know, post-2008 environment of, of virtually no inflation um, driven by like technology factors and, and a range of other things. And it sounds like your own views on inflation are transitory themselves, Paul, if they keep changing. Exactly. But we are definitely in the camp that, you know, there are parts of the inflation story which are transitory and you kind of got a feeling for that in the last us um, cpi print that came out so things like used car sales you know that didn't have as much of a meaningful impact some of the airlines and, and uh, prices on fares came down a little bit you know just illustrating that initial pop that you saw as the economy reopened and, and people splurged um is coming off but you know the things we watch are obviously wage growth is what's going to drive inflation in a more persistent manner um, and you just look at the job market in the US and you see the impact of the unwind of the unemployment insurance benefits that's happening now uh, and the fact you are getting more jobs added. <clears throat> the JOLTS report, which shows you there's more open positions in, uh, in the US than there are unemployed people. Uh, the fact that you're hearing in surveys from like the, the National Federation of Independent Businesses, they just can't find workers with the right skill set. You know, all that adds up to higher wage growth. And even surveys that look at reservation wages of workers in the US say that they want to be paid more. So there's definitely wage pressure that's going to come through. And in fact, one way we look at that wage growth is not simply thinking about the wages of non-supervisory workers year on year. It's to try and get rid of some of the distortions of COVID and look at the prices or how much wages are rising compared to two years ago. Uh, and if you do that, you see that wage growth in the US is at about 4%, which is pretty robust um, and is much, much higher than the last time the US was coming out of recession and, and we were thinking about what the Federal Reserve was going to do. <clears throat> so that's the persistence in inflation that we see actually being quite material uh, when we do see uh, those inflation prints come out and the personal consumption expenditure number. 
And the other part of it that it's really worth watching, I'm sure you've discussed this if you've, if you've covered inflation at length, is obviously the shelter costs. I mean, that's a third of the US CPI basket, and you have seen those shelter costs and rents start to rise because the US housing market has done exceptionally well, uh, and because you are seeing uh, a lot of the exodus from big cities like New York, where people were leaving during the pandemic, you know, starting to return. So that demand for apartments and rents is, is starting to move higher. And again, that's something that doesn't move it moves in much longer cycles. It doesn't sort of flit around just with the um, current monthly inflationary impulse. And if that does start to move higher, that's what's going to create that persistent inflation. And even over the next few months, inflation is going to be higher than what the Fed actually thinks it's going to be in their last statement of economic projections. And that does mean that you should see some expectations of more inflation come through, moving bond yields higher and inflation expectations higher as well. And that's one of the reasons we think that you know bond yields and bond markets at the moment really aren't capturing what's happening in the economy. So I want to get back to that in a second, but just briefly a message from our sponsor. This episode of The BIP Show is brought to you by Bridge Street Capital Partners, a Sydney-based corporate advisory firm that specializes in equity capital markets transactions for small cap companies listed on the ASX, primarily in mining, energy, and tech sectors. Sophisticated investors who want to hear about Bridge Street's upcoming capital raises can send their details to info at bridgestreetcapital.com.au and give The BIP Show a mention in your note. So, Kerry, uh, it does raise the question then you, you touched on it there at the end of your last answer uh the yield curve so um you know we've seen a lot of heavy buying in um in bonds uh, particularly longer dated bonds uh, recently um aussie 10 year is near one percent uh we're recording this on friday friday the 20th of august and um, the uh, the Aussie tenure was approaching one percent, uh, which I think is remarkable. Only a couple of weeks ago, it was at like one point two five, so it's um, it's come in a lot. Uh, we've got Jackson Hole coming up, of course. The U.S. tenure is kind of the reference point for the cost of everything. Um, so, how do you think this feeds into the equation for the Fed? You know, tapering being still on the table so bond purchases being being likely so some removal of some accommodatory settings uh, and then heading into potential tightening at some point what do you think yeah it's a, it's a bind i think for the fed because they've done <clears throat> such an extremely well telegraphed job of preparing the market for tapering i mean i think in next week at jackson hole will you know basically hear the fed say that they're going to announce it in september um, and really set up the case for it but at the same time they have to deal with you know, still rising numbers of, of COVID and Delta cases in the US and these concerns about the growth outlook. So I think the market is a bit uh, reserved because you've had a lot of misses on economic data out of the US of late. Um, you've had some good prints on the labor market, which is obviously key, uh, a bit of catch up in the revisions to the data in the past. But, you know, I'm thinking if I'm an investor in the bond market, you want to see a couple more of those really strong job gains, you know, circa eight, nine hundred thousand, a million jobs being added to really sort of be sure there's that momentum there. And I think this is one of the reasons why the market is, is yet to jump on the bandwagon of tapering and moving yields higher. Um, but it might start to adjust to that when you do hear the words come out of uh, Jerome Powell's mouth next week in terms of what to expect. Does that mean that yields are going to suddenly surge though? Um, unlikely, because you do have all these 
sort of, I guess, unexpected technical factors in the background, which are, you know, uh, unbelievably boring to talk about, but very, very necessary when we think about the Fed's actions in terms of overnight reverse repo rates and um, the repo market and what it's actually done, you know, the Treasury government account and, and how that's been used to believe by stealth and all these bond buying that's been created by banks as they, they've had too much liquidity uh, and they need to park the money somewhere. All that sort of acted to depress bond yields um, and that's not going to go away immediately. Um, and it certainly can't go away when the US has basically reached the amount of bonds and debt that it can issue, uh, at least for this year, because they've hit the debt ceiling. Uh, and so until they can start issuing new supply of bonds, you're still going to have a uh, constrained supply and still a demand by Fed and others, which is going to keep bond yields low. So I think that it will be a case of thinking about the Fed outlining that tapering plan, which will be announced in September, probably begin in December and run off at sort of 10 or 12 billion a month through the course of next year. Um, but the yields won't start to rise until that supply comes through, until there's more clarity around the infrastructure package that's going to come out and the need to issue a lot more debt. Uh, and then it'll be a question about thinking about not just when they'll raise rates, but what are they going to do with their balance sheet? Are they going to keep it at that level? Are they going to bring it down? Because that's still them buying bonds to keep the balance sheet at that level. But it will be a very slow and a very gradual process that view on the rate path going higher is going to have a very shallow trajectory. Um, and that's definitely what we know from, you know, a quite dovish Fed uh, and a very dovish Jerome Chow. Powell if he's still uh, leaving the Fed next year. So, and yeah, there's the, the, the enormous shopping list of, uh, you know, the acronym soup of uh, support measures that the Fed has in place, all the different types of uh, purchasing operations and uh, uh, market operations, open market operations that it, it has had in place, uh, you know, over the past eighteen months, they, you know, they sort of slowly start to draw a line through each of those. Each one of those is a sort of removal of some accommodation, if you like. Um, and then there's also, as you mentioned, there's the buy the buy the dip issue. Uh, you know, rates go to you know one point three, one point four. Um, there's plenty of pension funds, etc., who are um, ready to lift that. You know, when it when it comes their way. Um, so, do you have a do you have a rates outlook for for the for the Fed uh, following um, uh, the last Fed minutes uh, now, or do you have you know for for 2022? Do you have a, a, a rates outlook? Yeah, in terms of where the yields are going to be at yeah. the end of the year, um, it's lower. I mean, there's, there's no way of getting around it. I think the, the, the outlook for growth is a bit more moderate in the near term. Um, some of the persistent pressures that we've seen on, on bond yields are going to remain for a little bit longer than we anticipated. So, you know, a few months back, you're thinking about a two of a 10-year bond yield, and, and now it's probably going to be something close to 1.7 um, by the end of the year, which is – you know, probably around, or it's actually a little bit less than it peaked at back in March when there was all the enthusiasm around uh, government spending and an inflation surge. So there's this idea that bond yields have been falling uh, for a very long time, or since March, really, because of the, the technical factors and the fundamental factors. But I think what's more misleading is perhaps the bond market got it wrong back in March when they did surge so much higher 
uh, and that's kind of distorting the outlook. So we actually have seen, uh, we will see a relatively steady rise in bond yields, but it's just been condensed into the, to the back part of the year. Um, so it will be a case of thinking about bond yields moving up, which is the most important thing for investors, given you know what it means for the returns on, on fixed income. Um, but it's it's a lower trajectory for those yields to move, but it's something that will consistently it will move higher again next year as well. It's not like it'll just get to you know 1.7 on a 10-year treasury and suddenly stop moving. It's probably something that will keep going next year when we the infrastructure package, for example, being uh, brought through or um, the other package that the Biden administration is trying to get through as well at the moment um, and the, the fact that a lot more supply is going to come online as well. Yeah. Uh, Ken, you had a question? Yeah, I was just, I suppose, based on, you know, uh, everything carries carry that you've said and, you know, in, in answer to, to what Paul's been asking and talking about, it, it, there's a couple of things I want to touch on, but first and foremost, it takes me back to where we started this uh, this show and this chat in terms of your three peaks framework, let's call it, uh, in terms of how you perceive or how you look at the market and how, how you regard, you know, the situations that the market may find itself and, and, and what it needs to consider. Cons- given that everything that we're talking about is realistically is is a really, really slow-moving tanker, iceberg, whatever you want to call it, does that sort of in some way uh, take the sting out of the, the three-peak framework, if you will? Because, I mean, yes, of course, we've got to think about and anyone does, when rates will go higher, uh, the pace with which they'll do it, the conditions under which that'll happen, what what is growth and, and what is you know government policy, et cetera, look like in amongst all of that. But considering the world we live in and considering your own answers just you know minutes ago, I mean is it, it, it's it's a theoretical framework, right? Like it's it's a it's a place of luxury that econ- an economist can maybe sit back in and sort of go, well, you know, if this happens and then that happens, and if we look at it in a long enough time, I'm not having go quite the opposite. I'm just trying to gauge how you marry what is ostensibly theoretical in the time frame over which it elapses versus, you know, uh, even real money investment horizons, which are longer than, than your average sort of hedge fund or whatever it may be. How, how do you reconcile the two? Yeah, you're right. I mean, we've afforded the luxury of having these thought experiments and thinking about what will actually happen, but it doesn't always transpire that way. Um, when we come back to that sort of idea around the three peaks, I think it's, it's more a framework of thinking about what is concerning the markets and investors at the moment, that if you reach a peak, you know, it's pointy and you fall off the other side. Um, whereas that's not the case, as, as you know, we've just discussed, it's a peak, but it doesn't mean that you are going to have a steep drop. So, for example, take the accommodative monetary policy stance by central banks. Here in Australia, you can think about the RBA has talked about or the Federal Reserve or even the Bank of Canada, who's already started tapering their bond purchases. It's such a gradual and slow withdrawal of liquidity. It's not even a withdrawal of liquidity. It's just providing less liquidity yeah, every exactly. month as they just buy a few inferior bonds. So the fear, and I had it posed by a question by um, a journalist this morning, who just said, well, what happens when they take away $120, of, $120 billion of bonds every month? And it's like, they don't. They take away maybe 10, maybe 12. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's such a slow incremental adjustment that that's the idea markets can adjust to that. And it's similar with the growth story. Everyone worries about 
impact of the slowdown uh, in China at the moment, given that it's a large part of the world's economy, uh, and they do seem to be pursuing this sort of zero <coughs> COVID case uh, mentality. Uh, and also that the Delta case is rising in the US, which is a little bit different given the vaccination high. Again, the policy measures there are there to support the economies, whether it's through fiscal or monetary policy that's going to come through or could be uh, relaxed in the case of China. Uh, and the US economy is, is still operating at a, a growth weight, which is above trend. So while there is going to be a moderation in growth in these economies, it's, it's still relatively healthy compared to uh, <clears throat> where it has been prior to the pandemic. And it's still going to get a, a big fiscal push as well in the, in the coming years. So again, the, the growth is going to moderate from that peak, but it's not going to be something that falls off a cliff and there's not like we're thinking about a recession in any of these places anytime soon. Uh, and it's a similar story with the peak in the earnings. I mean, the first two quarters of this year in the US were remarkable in terms of their earnings growth, but earnings levels are going to still stay very high. And that's actually very supportive of markets, even if those growth rates uh, are a little bit more moderate, they'll probably be still very good compared to what we've seen historically. Fair enough. Um, and that sort of, in a roundabout way, leads me to, to the last thing I wanted to touch on before before I hand it back to Colgo, at least for now. Um, end of 2020s, so we're talking sort of, you know, mid, late December 2020 and certainly early, early Jan this year. Uh, Goldman Sachs at the time famously came out with, a, I think, something like a 130-page note, probably which at least 50 were disclaimers. But the, the note, the gist of the note was that, fellas, back up the wagons. Uh, the Roaring Twenties are here, and it is rainbows and lollipops as far as the eye can see, and it's just going to be gangbusters. Back up your wagons. We're all getting rich, and it's all going to be good news. Um, and I, I suppose that, that's, that's a very glib way of looking at it. A lot of people bought into it, but the gist of it was that, you know, the market had broadly incredibly recovered by that point. It was a V, v shaped recovery essentially from the, from the March 20 lows and whatnot. Um, vaccines were on the horizon. They'd been sort of, you know, discovered and were about to be distributed. And, you know, incredible stimulus, fiscal and monetary from all, all governments and central banks globally, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the, the streets were paved with gold. Just get out there and start picking it up. Um, I'm naturally cynical, which might be news and a shock to some listeners, but probably not many. But I, I suppose I, I, I just sort of took the other side of that and I thought that that's just, I can see the merit in the argument or could see the merit in the argument, but it was all just presupposing that everything was just going to be a straight line from here on in. Many, many bought into that in the market, and that was certainly through Q1 of this year, the mantra, the reflation trade, and everything's going to be all gangbusters, whatever. My main concern with that was the fact that uh, it couldn't be straight line. It was going to be idiosyncratic. It was going to depend on vaccine rollouts, vaccine hesitancy and take-up, uh, who, who could secure supply. You know, Australia's a perfect example of how that really sort of fell on its, on its backside. And globally, uh, that's that's also transpired in pockets. My question to you is, did you ever buy into the Roaring Twenties thesis? And if so, did you see it like they did, that it was going to be a 2021 story? Or were you sort of leaning towards where I was at, that it was idiosyncratic and that if it was at all going to transpire, in all likelihood, it might be a 2022 story? Uh, if at all, 
so basically, where, where do you sit on, on that side of the fence? Well, we've had a very positive view on risk assets uh, <clears throat> for some time now. So, I mean, I don't know if we'd go as far as say back up your wagons, but we're a bit more uh, balanced in our approach than that, uh, given who our investor base is. But I think it's fair to say that we were pretty strongly pro-risk, given that the, the economy was still moving forward. The earnings expectations would continue to move higher and higher and higher uh, over the course of this first half of this year. And there was that strong reflationary impulse that was coming through and all that sort of hope around the fiscal stimulus package, which, you know, <clears throat> got changed over time. So there was a huge amount of optimism in the market. And, you know, some assets, if you look at how they performed in some parts of the equity market, did move up in a straight line. They they did do exceptionally well. Um, others haven't. So I think it just goes to prove that, you know, it is a case of thinking about a bit more nuanced approach when it comes to allocating and risk assets, given that valuations have moved such a long way and the returns have been so strong. I think that view on risk assets, the, the shift towards value over growth or cyclicals over defensive, and that reflation is still something that is a focus for us and will be how we think about locating in this environment, particularly as we think about the risk of, of rising core government bond yields. But, you know, it's going to become a little bit moderate in terms of what we think equities can actually return in this environment, uh, given the run they've already had and given some of the moderation around earnings and growth as well. But it's not a case to say that, you know, the rally is over. Um, we're all going to go back to just sort of a defensive and growth position. I think there's still some way to go. This recovery and this uh, move out of recession that we've had this time around has been a lot quicker than it has been in many past ones. We think about coming out of the GFC, which is very protracted. Um, so we've moved very quickly in terms of the economy. The markets have moved very quickly in terms of some parts of the market. But I think there's still a lot of scope for, for catch up here as we are still dealing with the ramifications of the pandemic 18 months onwards. Uh, and it's still looking for that light at the end of the tunnel to get away from it in some parts of the world as well. So it does create more scope for, for those parts of the equity markets to do well. So but we're still very positive in terms of the risk assets and what they can do and having an overweight towards equities in this environment. Carrie, just quickly, one thing you mentioned uh, last year when we were uh, when we spoke, uh, you talked about uh, looking ahead that we were, you know, at the beginning of a new cycle. Uh, this was when things were terrible about, uh, you know, 12 or 14 months ago, uh, just from memory. Um, and you said, you know, well, maybe we're at the start of a new cycle now. And that, uh, But the question is how sustainable that cycle is, given that uh, so many companies were bailed out, like particularly in Australia, etc. So you don't get the usual creative destruction that happens with a recession. Um, and, uh, you know, the, what what sectors would survive globally and, and provide all the earnings growth and the uh, job creation, etc. Um, there, were, there were question marks over that. What, what do you think about that now? Um, uh, you know, given what you were just saying, um, what do you think about the sustainability of the uh, the upswing that we're in now that we've had a bit more time to look at it? Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, <clears throat> the last cycle is exceptionally long. Um, it doesn't necessarily imply that this cycle is going to be exceptionally short. Um, and I think the, the fiscal spend is the big difference this time around, which would sort of think about it being maintained in terms of uh, a normal economic cycle. Uh, distortions <clears throat> really aren't evident in terms of 
anything that we would consider an imbalance. You might point towards the high level of debt and say, well, there's a big one, um, but we do have these very, very low levels of rates and <clears throat> that sort of conversation has shifted from thinking about debt levels to debt sustainability and, and the sort of modern monetary theory of things and the, the hold hand, hand holding between governments and central banks. So uh, if anything, that, that sort of combined effort of monetary and fiscal policy is what's going to make this cycle continue and still looks um, relatively robust in our view. The thing about the creative destruction is, is, is very interesting because there's a great chart in one of our charts which basically shows you for the US <clears throat> the huge rise in unemployment uh, that you saw and then just almost no movement in delinquencies in, in companies. You know, there was virtually no defaults. Um, so because of all that government support. So we still have a, a, an inkling that there's going to be you know, as that government support is removed, uh, more defaults by companies that start to creep through. But, you know, if you've, if you've made it this far without this government support, you're probably okay. So it does think about focusing on, on the fundamentals of the companies and the micro more, but you would argue that there probably will be a little more scope for, for defaults to come through. And, and some of those um, companies that have been just sort of struggling and, and aiding from the, the government side of things probably won't survive uh, if their business model hasn't evolved uh, in the last 18 months or so. So I think there will be more of that churn to come through, but broader the health of households household balance sheets, the robustness of corporate balance sheets and the amount of cash they have. There's, there's still a lot of spending to come through in terms of CapEx, uh, which we haven't seen for a while. And if we combine that with balance sheets, household balance sheet spending, you know, those are pretty powerful influences on the economy uh, and enough to really see things moving uh, forward from here in, in a big way. And I think that, that CapEx cycle in particular is something we're watching closely to see how it evolves because it hasn't been something that was there for a long time uh, in, the, in the last part of the cycle. We came out of companies just went spending as freely because they didn't see the growth there if the cycle was coming to an end. And that does seem like a very different uh, frame of mind from companies right now. Yeah, and you know, where will that capital, uh, where will those capital investments be and how much productivity does it have the potential to unlock, et cetera? Certainly going to be interesting. You mentioned defaults. Um, and uh, I think one thing that I just wanted to briefly cover is uh, some of the interventions we've seen from China on uh, groups of companies. So um, uh, technology companies and education, uh, they've kind of reclassified education companies, which has um, blown up the, sh you know, smashed to smithereens the share prices of a few US listed uh, China-centric uh, education providers. Um, but more recently, uh, something that's caught my eye is that there's a kind of a non-zero possibility that uh, Evergrande, which is a titanic uh, Chinese real estate uh, company, uh, could go to the wall. I was looking at its uh, bond price. It has a lot of debt on issue. Uh, and its bond price uh, in May was trading at par uh, and this week, um, well, I'm just looking at those. These were their um, uh, two-year to maturity bonds, sort of 24s. Uh, uh, they're, yeah, they're 24, 2024 bonds trading at 37, 38 cents on the dollar. They've been absolutely annihilated. So people pulling their money out of, uh, out of that debt. Question obviously being, will uh, the Chinese government, you know, act as a backstop, which you would expect it to do in the normal course of things. But there has been a significant change in the sort of tone of conversation from Beijing uh, around uh, ultra-large companies, super successful uh, individuals as well. Uh, just yesterday, the FT had a story 
about uh, Xi briefing uh, all his top officials on the importance of basically wealth redistribution so that uh, people don't get too rich and uh, staggeringly rich, which of course has happened in China in the process of all the economic growth over the last few years, uh, but that there has to be some kind of balance in there. Now, it's a that's a huge question, but maybe even just with companies like Evergrande um, and a few others, uh, we just start with those. Like, what are the implications of this for markets? Do you think There's, there are large implications from this? I think the the starting point though is to think remember that you know the one guiding principle of thinking about China and how China's officials run their economy is stability. They want stability, whether it's a, the economy in terms of the social stability, in terms of financial market stability. They want stability, and if they see areas where there is potential for that stability to be challenged, whether it's tech companies becoming too powerful or, um, you know, maybe uh, shading out competition from smaller ones or whether it's uh, education providers who are taking advantage of the the way the education system works in China um, and bringing instability in terms of uh, household size and family size, then Chinese officials will act. Um, The discerning thing for many, I guess, people outside of China looking in, investors looking in, is that these happen very quickly. You don't get lengthy sort of consultation periods around what policy might be announced and it's going to come in. It just happens very quickly and that's the unsettling factor for many and it's, you know, what we've seen over the last uh, few weeks. But some, when it comes back to the credit story, you know, China's trying to allow markets to price risk more effectively. Uh, I think in the case of Hurong, there's a story this morning that you know China is actually stepping in to, to help that company a little bit to add that stability back in to the market viewpoint. Um, so I think it's all about that stability. Even the growth story, you know, there's still potential for, for fiscal stimulus through the issuance of special government bonds and local government bonds that have been used up this year to, to help for fund infrastructure, which create more growth. There's prospects for you know more. Triple R reserve requirement ratio rate cuts for banks so they can provide more credit to the market to try and shore up near term growth. And this is all the while that China is thinking about, you know, the next five years, the next 10 years, and how it needs to shape that economy to achieve that stability in the long run. And so I think that's the, the trade off that many people don't see when they think about the volatility in Chinese equities or the way the market moves abruptly on the back of these news stories. So we do need to approach it slightly differently at the moment in terms of the sentiment towards China being quite poor, the fact that there probably will be more regulatory action come through as, as China does try and pursue these actions that create that stability and achieve some of their socio-economic goals. Um, and so it's going to be a little bit more tenuous in the market in the near term, but a lot of that doesn't change those those long-term views on not all regulation is negative. You know, you think about what's happening in terms of the, the environment there, um, the, the move to become more self-sufficient and semiconductor production, electric vehicles, for example, the, the consumer wealth side of things. There's still a huge amounts of opportunity that are present in China, which some of these regulations may actually improve if they do create more competition. It's certainly interesting. It's going to be something you're really going to watch because it's introduced a, a lot of volatility into sort of um, you know, NASDAQ, the NASDAQ index um, and um, subcomponents of the NASDAQ index. So it's, uh, it's certainly going to be interesting. And of course, then there's all the impact on the Hong Kong exchange and uh, Asian markets generally uh, during the trading day. So um, definitely going to be interesting to watch. One other, sorry, I've got one last thing to ask you really quickly about because I know uh, I'm conscious of time. Um, but massive story here uh, in 
Australia with uh, BHP getting out of oil. Um, obviously, ESG has been such a big part of uh, uh, allocation conversation over the last few years. Uh, it's not going away. It's it's here to stay. And I think, if anything, the processes and the thinking about it are uh, becoming more robust and, and sophisticated. So obviously, you're, you you would see a lot of this in uh, conversations with investors. But what else do you think is coming up here in terms of um, is the, in terms of ESG? What will you be looking out for? I think it's just the the level of reporting. So you know, public markets, the reporting around ESG is improving all the time. We think about uh, scope one, two, three emissions. You know, you are seeing scope three emissions become more into focus. Portfolios and investors are definitely focused on uh, the carbon intensity of their portfolios, and that's a, a big focus in terms of the companies they own. I think it's going to shift though from becoming I need to own companies that that are doing uh, the right things in terms of um, ESG, but also thinking about, you know, what's really driving my portfolio and, and how far do I tilt? Uh, you know, there's a huge variation in terms of ESG scores, how they're calculated, yeah. uh, what they actually measure. Uh, it's similar on the fixed income side we see coming through, and it's it's probably even more opaque on some of the pri- public, private markets, excuse me, such as, you know, private equity credit and, and hedge funds. So there's definitely a degree of, of being very aware and when something says it's ESG and companies are saying they're doing the right things in terms of what they're actually presenting and measuring. I think it's going to be a, just a continued shift from companies as they try to improve their scores and metrics. And you're more likely to see further divestment in companies away from things that are fossil fuels. Uh, and also that sort of, I guess, a fossil fuel discount being applied to companies which are, are still maintaining in that area because we can't shift away from fossil fuels immediately. There's still going to be a need for them over the next decade. Um, so it might be a, a little bit more thinking about the risk reward for investors there in terms of, you know, are they willing to own companies that have those weaker scores, um, but perhaps still looking like positive companies in terms of what you're paying for them and, and the returns they can have, uh, at least in the next couple of years, versus am I an investor who just wants to do good in terms of ESG and own the, the best companies in, in terms of the environmental standards, for example. Yeah, I certainly think the scoring systems, are it's a Pandora's box. I, I, I looked at a fairly comprehensive report of how uh, a bunch of different funds, like dozens and dozens of, of uh, funds, asset managers, think about ESG and how they, what their process is. And it's literally from, it's like it's so diverse across how people, how different um, capital management companies think about this. Because like in one, they have like a committee, you know, in one institution, you'll have a committee that is the ESG committee uh, in another you know, in the one just down the road that looks very similar on paper, they have an entirely different process, which is about score sheets, and um, maybe they have a provider that they're using uh, to assess them. But then, of course, you get into the question of like, well, what's the process that the provider uses for the accreditation of ESG, uh, you know, rated investments, etc. So uh, it's a really, really big question. No doubt uh, it's going to be a hot topic of conversation for a long time to come. One thing that we're not going to be talking about um, for uh, at least over the next couple of weeks is the final Bledisloe uh, Cup match because it's been cancelled. Uh, and I saw one person very amusingly uh, say today that um, don't worry, the Wallabies will, find, will probably find a way to lose the match anyway. Um, it, uh, it's uh, the absolute uh, toweling that the All Blacks gave the Wallabies uh, last week in in Auckland was 
quite a sight to behold, um, and particularly after there's been a lot of trash talk. So I'll, I'll take my hat off to uh, to your Kiwi brethren, uh, Kerry. They're um, it's an extraordinary team, um, and I imagine uh, something that was a bit entertaining to watch uh, when when you got a bit of skin in the game like that. It was a fantastic game. I didn't know that the the, um, the Perth game would be cancelled, so I'm a bit sorry to hear that. So, um, but yeah, I'm hopefully, yeah. hopefully it returns soon. <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> I just like you know that the you know like please make it stop. Like just a, you know, yeah. So uh, very tough times for Australian rugby. I think they'll get there eventually, but uh, um, you know I'm, I'm confident that they will. Uh, but uh, they're, they're pretty dark days uh, as we go. But um, Kerry, uh, thank you so much for making the time to come on and, uh, and chat to us. Well, thank you very much for, for having me on and, and for the conversation. Uh, and just a reminder that this episode of the BIP show was brought to you by Bridge Street Capital Partners, Sydney-based corporate advisory firm specialising in equity capital markets transactions for small cap companies listed on the ASX, primarily in mining, energy and tech sectors. Can I also just give a quick shout out if you, if uh, anybody is interested uh, in seeing some of Kerry's regular work, if you just Google uh, JP Morgan Guide to Markets Australia, uh, you will uh, be able to uh, register to get a, a, a copy of the quarterly Guide to Markets, uh, which is a fantastic overview of everything that's happening in uh, markets around the world, include, including uh, what I have uh, learned to be super helpful uh, table, which is the PMI chart of uh, all the um, uh, economies around the world, uh, shows you in, in a heat map whether they're expanding or contracting, and it's always a good guide to the healthy economy. Uh, I imagine that's a fair bit of work, Kerry. Uh, uh, it takes up a fair bit of time, does it? It, it does. It, it uh, seems to come around quickly every quarter. In fact, we've just sort of started talking about the themes that we're thinking about for, for next quarter and the, the charts and everything we want to put into the guide to, to help our clients talk to their own clients about the, the world economy and capital markets. So it does seem to sneak up every time, but there's always a, a wealth of information to, to try and cram in there. Yeah, it's, it's certainly worth a read. I always look forward to it. Uh, Ken Vexler in Amsterdam, uh, that was uh, that was great. Um, good to be back on some macro harm turf too, I'm sure. Indeed. Uh, thank you, Cogram. And more importantly, thank you, Kerry, for the time and, and for putting up with my uh, long-winded questions and, and perhaps... Uh, prodding in the wrong direction but no that was great and really appreciate you coming on and joining Thank you. don't forget to subscribe to the show rate us and leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts you can find us on itunes at the bip show or wherever you get your podcasts we're on twitter it's at the underscore bip underscore show and we're on facebook too just search the bip show uh, we're there individually at colgo and at ken vexler uh, don't forget again to uh, subscribe, rate the show, tell your friends. We love those five-star ratings. Uh, the show is produced by Rick Salter, and we will catch you next time. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.